What does true wellness mean to you? I'm Claudia Cometa, and that is the question I will be leading with in the Minding Wellness podcast. Each and every week, I will bring you experts who will share their personal wellness journeys and their insights into what it means to mind our wellness. Health is a state of body. Wellness is a state of being. Let's dive into improving our state of being. Back with more COVID-19 from the front lines. Today with Dr. Bon. He is a quadruple board certified physician working in California. He used to practice emergency medicine and now works in a variety of facets in the world of medicine, including urgent care. He has worked with and is actively treating multiple patients with COVID-19, and he is willing and open to share his experience with the treatment protocol he is using. This is so valuable at a time when there is so much uncertainty to at least have a number of patients responding to a treatment protocol. I hope you find value in this, and I also hope that you share because there are many physicians on the front lines who have a lot of uncertainty over the protocols that are working, and this is one experience of one physician that I think is extremely valuable. So enjoy. All right. I am so honored to bring you Dr. Bond today. He is coming to us from California, so the other coast from me, and I really appreciate his time. I was able to see one of his sort of YouTube webinars, and I was so inspired by his heart for his patients and also the work he's doing on the front lines and his experience primarily treating at this point COVID-19 patients and the results he's getting. And I thought this would be extremely valuable to get out to as many people as I could. So I reached out to him and he was so gracious to give us some of his time today. Thank you so much for being here, Dr. Vaughn. Thank you for having me here. And uh, you know, I want to thank my uh, colleague, uh, Sarah, Dr. Sarah Dooley. So without her, you and I probably wouldn't be talking right now because that's our connection. And uh, one say say thanks to Sarah as well too, and uh, miss her a lot. Uh, she's out in the East Coast. I'm on the West Coast here. Absolutely. So that's the post that I saw. Sarah shared his video, and I immediately clicked on it. And just she had nothing but great things to say, and I I loved every minute of it, and reached out. So absolutely, thank you to Sarah for for connecting us over the interwebs. So, Dr. Bond, can you just explain a little bit before we dive into the sort of the content uh, a little bit about your background and the and the work that you do, the the focus that you have in medicine now. Um, so uh, before I went to medical school, I actually have a PhD in nutrition. I was a system professor, and then I went back to medical school. Medicine was me becoming a little bit too defensive, and uh, I was just start beginning to feel like I was um, protecting myself and covering my own interests. And I felt the day that that came, I'm not the right person. So I opened up uh, with my colleague. We push hard, and we have about five urgent care now out here. And I feel like in the urgent care, I can do a lot of things that um, I've done in the ER without having to use a lot of lab, a lot of um, technology that costs us so much money. So I'm, I'm a lot happier. And uh, we also have a primary care. So that helps help to um, keep people safe and also uh, help them monitor a lot of their daily care. So that was one of the things that I was most afraid of being ER. Like, well, what happened when they leave my ER? It's like, what do we do? You know, so the old saying is like, 
there's no bad admission. So every doctor want to admit patient and I'm on the opposite. So now I haven't gone to a primary care, urgent care and ER, I sort of understand the whole dynamic and how it all works together. And, and I'm very fortunate to have that because that gave me a different perspective. Um, on the last part of the last three years, I, I spent a lot of time, I, have an, I had another clinic that I did, which is looking at wellness and how to help people reverse diabetes, obese naturally. And what it did for me was understand the internet and how do I put together a program that educate people. And so when this happened, that was such an easy link for me where like, okay, no big deal. I'm able to make that transition too. And I think that's the biggest thing as a physician, you have to be able to pivot. If you don't, or if you're not able to pivot, the world will pass you. And this is what happened COVID-19. A lot of us are not able to make that change quick enough. Mm, it's so important. And it's such, it's such a good point because I think a lot of us sort of hesitate to move our own practices into, you know, the, the technology and all of the, it's just a lot, it's a learning plateau, you know, it's a learning curve and, and some of us have just plateaued, but it's, um, it's important because now, you know, telehealth is a big deal. And so being able to be adaptable and being able to pivot is so important. I was so inspired by your review of the cases of COVID, obviously without identifiers, your review of the cases of COVID that you have treated and the results that you've seen. So I would love to just kind of talk through um, some of this, not in too, too much detail in, in the scientific world, because a lot of our listeners aren't necessarily medical professionals, but let's just dive in a little bit to specifically your experience. So first, let's talk through the symptomatology and what you have seen in the cohort that you have seen and treated. What is the symptomatology and timeline of those symptoms been looking like? You know, this is very interesting. When I did that video, I actually have more information that sort of, I, I'm always trying to think, you know, I, probably the last week I didn't sleep as well because I, I get excited and I'm thinking about what am I doing to help. And so that's just who, who I am. And, you know, I keep, you know, my wife and I are working really hard this. So she does a lot of things to help. And what I noticed uh, was very important is that when I first started, it, I started noticing that everybody had um, the one. So what I document all the people that are very sick, and what I'm going to show on my next one is show the whole family how there's really three groups to me of people that you'll see, right? There's going to be one that have no symptoms, maybe congestion. There's going to be another group that's sort of mild to moderate. And I'll describe that in terms of like they, they might have fever for three, five days, have like from anywhere from 99 to 101 fever. Uh, some malaise, like uh, really some aches, uh, very f uh, fatigue from very mild to very severe. Uh, have some cough, some have diarrhea and headache. Sometimes have headache without any cough. So that's sort of a fooler. Um, and then what happened is like by the, uh, anywhere from fifth to sixth day, they start feeling better. Like that aches and pain that they couldn't take. They start getting better and they start feeling slowly the energy back and their taste actually starting coming around. And so that's the, sort of the, the medium group, the moderate group that you see that group two. And the group three is the very severe. And it, in a family where you have a syllabic uh, community, you, you get see about four or five people around the clock taking care of this person. This person should start off with fever, severe uh, fatigue, malaise, severe aches and pain. And that could go on for, and I document that it's go as much as like 12 days. If I didn't intervene, it'd probably gone even longer. Uh, some of them will have cough. Some of them will start having uh, a lot of pressure. 
So start feeling like you can't take deep breaths. You feel like constantly you have something sitting on you. And some people have sort of uncontrollable coughs. So when they start coughing, they can't catch their breath. It's almost like um, uh, in children, you have bronchiolitis, right? When they're early on, they just, they're not well developed. They have this cough, 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 cough. It's only that same phenomenon. And so that's what you tend to see in these people. But the common one is the taste. In the last two group, the taste is sort of gone. And some people have smell, but they just can't eat anything. And um, they can't get out of bed. So to say that, and these people, I don't even know how they managed to go to their prime care and ER, but they barely got out of bed. And they, they need help to the restroom. They need to have water. So you need a lot of support. And very fortunate in this community, they, they have that. They have a very strong uh, sense of community, but a very strong uh, extended uh, family. So that's sort of the, the progression that those things. And so if you, if you go on from those, if they didn't recover by seven days, you start seeing them come out longer and, um, and they start, that's when the problem goes. That's when to me, if you don't get involved, um, it can start becoming a flip of a coin. And that's why I see in the ER and when they start talking about it, in the ER and hospitalization, that some people know they didn't have a, a strong um, effect from the medication. And I think that's because uh, the two part. One is that if the virus make too much copies or replicate themselves. Two is that your immune system, if you're a older and if you already have um, other medical issues, your immune system is already elevated, right? Your inflammation response already are higher. So now having this signal that's in there start to rev up because this novel virus you've never seen before make the inflammation higher. So that's why the fever is always there and they cannot uh, overcome it. And that's when they become very sick. And if you didn't produce a medication that lower the viral load and also decrease the inflammation, the immune system is going to kill you. And that's what's happening. So. Yeah, it's so important. And I like that you pointed out, it's helpful to know that there are sort of these cohorts of people who don't necessarily present with the same symptomatology and that maybe we shouldn't um, assume that it's going to look a specific way because everybody's sort of responding a little bit differently. Would you say those in that severe third group you mentioned? Because obviously everybody's wondering, will I be in that third group? Um, Those risk factors that have been sort of told to us over media and over literature, um, has that kind of held true in what you've seen with regard to the older population, those with comorbidities, or have you also seen the severity happen in somebody you wouldn't necessarily expect? Uh, you know, it's very interesting because you see for, um, so like when I, so I was looking at today and I've been contact, I've been on the phone with everybody, like every day I talk to them. And then it, it just dawned on me last few days, like, hey, I should really look at everybody in the family because at first they're so focused on their mom, their dad, brother, sister, and that we forget the fact that, and then I start talking like, wow, there are like four or five of you there who's sick and what, what are the symptoms? And, you know, some of the people that have the symptom that they got over is still very severe. It's very achy, pain, weakness. And there's other people that are young that have those symptoms too. So I have uh, a few younger uh, female and male, some are nurses even, and they have severe symptoms. Uh, And one of them that I documented was a young man that made it to the, the hospital because his wife was delivering. And he was in labor and delivery and postpartum with her. 
came home still have like eight days of fever. So he's pretty miserable and a lot of diarrhea and still coughing now, so I have trouble breathing. So it's not limited to the older population. I just think the older population, if you let it go too long, it's really hard to come back from it. It's really hard to undo that because your immune system become too strong for you to overcome. And then you compound that with infection, you have secondary to, to, um, uh, to the virus, pneumonia, you name it. And then once you get in the hospital, you're in the ICU thing, you start having clotting issues. So that's one of the things they start noticing is that they start having clotting. So if you look at the population, there's a great study, I've been waiting for this to come out for a long time with vitamin C. So in China, what they did was they looked at a group of patients from moderate severity to severe, and even, I don't even know how you get even beyond severe, mm -hmm. but they start them up with 10,000 um, milligrams a day of in, injection of vitamin C. If severe, they give them 20, and they even give them 50. From what I've seen in that paper, no more mortality, and these people on ventilators and things like that. So, you know, I, when I was, I was very excited about the study that came out of Virginia, I think Commonwealth, uh, there's a medic, uh, medical school or there's a physician that did that on decreasing sepsis last year. So I was very excited about that. And I always been a proponent of uh, vitamin C. And so the amount they gave, right, if you give more than 10,000 uh, milligram vitamin C, you're going to have diarrhea and things. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I was talking about 2,000. I say, if you have it, I, I would recommend even up to 5,000 milligram of vitamin C. And, you know, my, my background, my PhD is in nutrition. And I started that before I did uh, medical school. So I, I love the health that I love using that over medication. So if you're my patient, you already know if you're going to see me, I'm going to start taking up your medication because I think subtraction is a lot harder than addition, right? It's easy to put medication. But to get back to your, uh, your question was that, would it hit everybody? Yes. Uh, on a young person, I start my medication, they recover a lot faster than an older person. And no brain, right? We, we know that. So Yeah, really important point, I think, because I, I think a lot of younger people maybe tend to take it a little bit for granted that, okay, well, this is an older person's disease. This is not, even if I get it, I'll be able to get over it. But I think it's important just to point out that it's, it's not necessarily completely 100% predictable that even young people are not going to have the severity that the elderly have. So let's dive into your, your treatment experience. So what is sort of your protocol and how do you approach it? And how has your experience been with, with your protocol? Um, I think it's sort of uh, modified just a little bit. Um, some of the information I got originally was uh, from Dr. James uh, Tudoro um, out of uh, New York, and I had a chance to talk to him. Uh, I can't remember was this week or last week, and uh, that article really inspired me to look more deeply. And the article looked at the, a lot of the protocol um, that was uh, done in some of the research that was done in um, South Korea and China. And it was looking at patient, and they already started doing the recommendation. I'm like, wow, these people have the most exposure. And now we're looking at them not having any issue of spreading. And I don't ever hear much about death in the country, both in China and Korea. And I was like, when I read, I read it, I was actually very upset that I didn't know about it. And this was coming out like in February. And uh, I was very disappointed that I didn't know. And I was very upset myself, didn't research it thoroughly. So I thank him for that. And he and I had a long conversation how 
we're going to help population in New York, which are in big trouble. And so my, so the protocol first came out, I was uh, doing, so I did, and I was looking at uh, different treatment and malaria and I, and I was promoting like, why are we even not thinking about the way that they treat malaria? Because the way they do it, and you think about 500,000 uh, 500, people die a year from malaria and they struggle with this. Uh, on a regular basis, you know, and this medication when I prescribe to patients or people that want to go to other country, it's so short. It wasn't a big deal for me. So when I started, I wasn't afraid to do it. And what I did was I start off with um, 400 milligram twice a day, okay, on day one, and then on day uh, um, on day two to day seven, I would go to uh, once a day 400 milligram, and so. Um, Hydroxychloroquine is coming 200 milligram. So you basically do like four of those. So two and then two and, they, and then the next day you do two, two tablets for once a day. And some people do twice a day, but I just go say, go ahead, just give once a day. Because Placonil or hydroxychloroquine is actually um, stored in your body. So if, if you're somebody who has um, uh, lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, or some kind of autoimmune, uh, the dose is even higher. I mean, their dose is much higher than that. And so they build up in their body and it stores. So if you start building the body, it can be in there as much as 40 days. So it's really amazing that it can store that long. So anyway, so I go to seven days. So now I have some people that already got to seven days. Um, they already been better way before then. Like after the first day, no fever. Mm. You know what I mean? Literally, they start, and, and the sooner you start them on, if I start them on by day five, day six of their symptom, they're like, wow, I can't believe I can breathe. Yesterday, I felt I couldn't breathe, right? It's, that's how fast. And the weakness started to come around slowly. You know, you're not going to be like, whoa, I'm going to run around. But one person sort of did. And um, he was a little bit, he was in his 50s. But everybody else is slowly, I would say, you know, like you starting like 50%, 70. And then slowly each day, you, you start getting some of that weak back and the taste start come back. So people start to take more fluid. They start to uh, eat a little more. And I, I think to me is that you're, if you don't have fever, your immune system, it modulates so it's not overreacting. So the, it doesn't have to fight too much. The fever comes down first. And then by the time you start getting taste back, I think that it's a big turnaround because they start feeling that energy is coming around. The second part of that is um, it's a combination that we use out of France, Marcel, France. And they added Zithromax to it. This is where the controversy comes in, right? So they start on Zithromax uh, on these uh, people in addition to it. So they said, if they start on Zithromax by day six, the viral load's almost like, it's not in, almost measurable. So that's the great part. So I start them together. And the reason is that, like I was saying before, if you get infection and you especially, everybody start having cough and lung issue, you're going to have other infection, not just COVID-19. You can have other infection from bacteria, so staph aureus, like on your skin, getting your lungs, strep pneumo, things like that can get into your body. So that's a great way to, to do it in combination. And so and we'll talk about um, the prolonged QT if you ask me later on. And the second thing part to it is supplements. So I, I, I talk a lot about supplement and health. And so this was an easy one for me. So vitamin C, I always recommend 2,000 uh, milligram of vitamin C. 
And I think vitamin C um, recommendations by about like 50 milligram is probably about 100, easily 100 year outdated. And that what we're trying to prevent scurvy, right? So most of us are not traveling across with Dr. Jason, Lynn, and worry about, you know, scurvy and calling Sailor Limey because they're bringing limes across the, the sea, right? But now you have a lot of people with co um, mobility or a lot of um, pre-existing condition, it lowers your vitamin D and uh, vitamin C. So think about the vitamin C and uh, sugar are very similar in structure. You load up more sugar, your body tend to hold that and dump vitamin C. So the more sugar you have, the more vitamin C is going to be dumped. So you can see that most of the people I believe are really uh, more deficient vitamin C than they think, but just our data goes back to prevention rather than really looking at what chronic disease is. Okay. Vitamin D is one is a really good immune modulator in my clinic um, and having a uh, board certification in anti-aging regenerative medicine, I understand a lot of hormones. And what I know is that everybody, when you age, you get older is one, your vitamin D is very low. When I check all my population, a lot of retirees in this population, vitamin D typically below 30, right, the level. And so when you get hit with this virus, it dropped like this really fast. And so that's the one thing that helped modulate your immune system so it won't overreact. Uh, and so I say, hey, look, vitamin D is one that's fat soluble can store. But from what I see, I have not seen a person over 60 uh, on the level if they weren't treated for vitamin D. And everybody's like taking like 700, 1,000. It takes forever to get up. It really, when I measure a patient, it takes literally forever to get up higher. So I say to be safe, just take 5,000 IU in a month or something, just recheck it. Most of you use so much of, um, of um, sunscreen. I, I think that's a big, big part, you know? And one other caveat is last year when I was sick with a, a viral in, uh, infection from hep, I have a uh, chronic hep B. And I got a flare-up last year. That's why I was telling that I almost died last year. And, and when I checked my vitamin D, it was so low. I'd never seen my level in the 20s before. But it's your body. It was trying to help my body through three months. I didn't really know how, how bad I was feeling. It dropped to 20-something. And if you look at me, how dark I am, I'm my level, and I take vitamin D, I'm, I'm usually about 60 or 70 when you measure it, you know? The next one, next one is, um, is zinc. So zinc is known to help to slow down and block some of the um, RNA polymerase to replicate the virus. And so if you take zinc, that's what it does. But supposedly hydroxychloroquine can help that, um, that uh, element or that mineral get into the cells, right? And be able to replicate that uh, response to try to lower... Uh, to lower the, um, the viral load and the replication. The only I, problem I have with uh, zinc is that zinc and copper work too closely together. If you load up on zinc, it's going to mess the absorption with copper, and they both work together hand in hand. So I recommend them together, right? Uh, I know Dr. Zelenko out of New York recommend 220 milligram of zinc for five days. And, you know, I, I don't get, ever get up that high you know, level, and that might be for treatment protocol. But for the general population, I go from anywhere from 15 
to 20 milligram of uh, zinc with uh, maybe one to two milligram of copper. That's how I approach it. Um, I, I definitely think that if you lower things that increase inflammation, sugar, processed food that drives up the inflammation. If you don't work on gut health, it drives up inflammation. Um, other things that I do, I, I do probiotic, uh, 40, 000, uh, 40 billion CFU uh, daily. I do that all the time. It's not new. I always do things that protect my gut. So I do a lot of resistance starch. Um, and I will talk another time on that one. It, it, it's, a, it's a hard topic. It's a great one to talk about. Um, I do um, omega-3 uh, with DHA and e EPA as well. Because um, I find that when people are in a lot of the, the keto diet, et cetera, they focus too much on animal fat and the essential fatty acids become off. And that could be a, a big essential, um, uh, essential fatty acid that can also affect your body too. So those are things. Really interesting. Uh, I want to point out a few things, although I think all of that is so important for people to hear, because if I don't know that all, like you mentioned, not maybe not all the healthcare providers are knowledgeable about some of the treat treatment protocols. So if we have the public at least knowledgeable about what others are doing, they can bring this to mm -hmm. their physician if the physician is, has not been made aware of this. So I think it's valuable to get it out to really everybody. But I wanted to point out it, the sugar piece is really important because right now with everybody being quarantined and at home, you know, a lot of people are craving carbs and they're munching on, they're munching on sugary substances or drinking sugary drinks. They're out of their routine. And so I think it's just important to point that out and, and how we have the power in a lot of our nutrition to help lower our inflammatory processes. And that will help if we do get exposed, it will help anyways to just be in a healthy state. But but to start to pay, start paying attention to those things so that we aren't starting at a high inflammatory state if and when we are exposed to coronavirus. So I think that that's really important. But I also think it's important to point out that, as you mentioned, a lot of people are confused about the z pack part because they're like, well, I thought we were, you know, thought it was a virus and I thought we don't treat, you know, viruses with antibiotics. Why are we doing that? I thought that's why we were trying to limit z pack But as you pointed out that we can have super infections and um, a lot of people are, are seeing that, you know, bacterial pneumonia. And so that's the piece yeah. for the z pack And I'm curious as to if you have run into any back orders or issues obtaining hydroxychloroquine with the demand that's on it right now. And if you have what your sort of next step is? Um, you know, my, um, uh, the first complication I had was um, in Washington when I was treating this. Uh, and so um, a patient can establish me, I'm in California, they can establish me and I can prescribe in that population. Um, I think they're more of an issue if they're controlled substances, but not for other medications. So, I already established the care with a telemed uh, phone call, and I probably do. I've probably been more thorough than even in my own clinics, right? This is, you're following people, calling everybody, uh, video conferencing for probably about every day, three, four times a day with everybody, because I want to know uh, how's everybody doing and trying to document it. And so when I first call um, this medication, um, nobody said anything, right? Nobody because nobody was treating it, so nobody compared. So by the time I got to the sixth patient, now I started getting pushback. Like, hey, you know, why are you using this medication? Start questioning me and things like that. And then they cut me off. So I had to call, 
other pharmacy and um, talk to them about it. And again, so they didn't hear about me. So I started getting the medication to people and it, it was helping them. And then I got pushed back again. So they blocked me again. So I went to another one. And uh, by the third day, um, the pushback was that I'm not allowed to prescribe it. Only doctor in Washington should. And I'm like, wow, where did, when did you give me that mandate being a pharmacist? Because as you can see, look on your, on your board that there's no mandate saying that I'm regulated to do this, you know? But in the meanwhile, nobody in, the, in that area, that city was giving out the medication, no matter what, from big HMO uh, like Kaiser, who since have changed their protocol. And, but they had a lockdown. All the physicians there told their group, do not use this medication because it's very dangerous. Um, I had a doctor yesterday call their patient, even though they didn't treat anybody, they called their patient to stop taking this because the side effect, they can go blind from uh, retinopathy. And uh, I was like, really? I believe that's when you are treating somebody chronically, they're on very heavy dose. That's the one consideration. You can look at on lupus.org to even see that. You're talking about five to seven days, you know? And so, um, so I, I get pushed back every day and I, I call in. And what I've noticed is that what I notice is that I have controlled the population now because I contained it because they're all home. I document who they are. I got everybody who's sick. So now they're not spreading the virus to everybody else. So now I'm getting less call and people are doing better. And I'm following because they're all extended family. They're all in the church. So I'm hoping I'm containing it and not allowing this to spread because everybody's still at home unless they're going to the, to the hospital to, to make sure um, they're okay. And so in California, it's a different story. You don't have any. I, like if you call, the one thing they'll tell me is that I, have, I only have enough for my patient here, current patient, and we will not, um, we will not release for any other mm -hmm. treatment at this particular point. There's a few pharmacy that's out there. And I wanna say one thing, okay? I am not saying that don't treat my patient who have gone through, have lupus and rheumatoid arthritis and autoimmune disease that are on this medication. That's not my argument, okay? My point being is that, look, there's a medication out there when people are dying, you have to consider this medication, okay? That's the most important part for us to rev that medication up to be able to do that. I, I have lupus patient and I know how bad they feel and how worried they are. Same thing with rheumatoid arthritis. I'm just saying that as a medical community, our rheumatologists really need to step up and help us and say, okay, look, is there are other alternatives that we can help our patient that have autoimmune system because I get, this is my own hypothesis, but I have a feeling they are not susceptible. If they're on that already and they're building the body, they won't be as susceptible to this virus. Okay. That's my, I don't have data, but I'm going to see if that's something we'll see. And two is that we have to see if there's a balance, right? So there should no, we shouldn't leave like, Let's fight one. It's so black and white, and that's not how life is, and that's not how medicine is. There's nothing black and white. We really need to figure out a way, but if 
a physician are supposed to be the leader and we're not stepping up to figure out, then we, to my, in my view, and I might be extreme, but I think that you should really give up your license to someone else and give it away because you are have you have to be the leader, right? And people, people go to you and look up to you to be able to do this. You know, when I have pushed back from some of my colleagues in ICU to tell me that, well, I'm, this is dangerous what I'm doing. And I, I said, well, I'll put it this way to you, okay? Have you ever used Plaquenil in a patient before? Answer is no. Okay, that's one. The next question is that, have you treated any patient with COVID-19? One. So where were the patient when you treat them? They're prone and they're innovative. Mm-hmm. Were you able to talk to the patient? No. So what did you learn from this? Nothing. Right? So that's my point, right? So, so for then for people to say that this is dangerous, my thoughts are this, is that physicians are not expert in using this medication and they're afraid. That's one of the biggest part. So it's easier to hide behind the no data than it is to try to save somebody and monitor them, right? You put them on two, three days, what's going to happen? Nothing. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. You take them off. If they, you measure COVID-19 and they're negative, take them off. Follow them. Be a doctor, right? Mm-hmm. What, what have you done in three days that harmed them? But I guarantee from what I've seen, if you didn't do something about it, they're going to be in the hospital. They're going to be fighting for their life. They're going to be fighting. Yeah, really important points. I actually completely agree with you and not just because you're on with me right now, but I do. I do think yeah. that there is this fear mongering over the potential side effects. I mean, I, as a pharmacist, I, you know, I of course educate people on, I have a, you know, I have a advocacy client who takes hydroxychloroquine and she just, she started, um, you know, a couple months ago. And of course I educated her on you know, the risk versus benefits and their side effect, most of which, as you mentioned, are going to be long-term and you, you manage them and you get monitored by your ophthalmologist and all of those things are in place. This is not a new medication. It's not a new medication. It's maybe a new use of a medication, but it's not a new medication. And, um, you know, why are we more likely to be open to something completely brand new than a medication that we've had and we, we have information on? So I agree with you. Um, and, I, and I know that there are a lot of loopholes right now and a lot of red tape in the pharmacy world. Pharmacists are, you know, getting prescriptions for like a thousand tablets from some from certain physicians who are stockpiling. But then there's then there's those of you who, like you who are just trying to help your individual patients. And because it all gets lumped together as just this, you know, abuse or overuse, yeah. nobody gets what they need. And it's it's a little bit of a mess. And those who don't necessarily know that side of it maybe don't realize that that's what's going on. I'm, I'm curious as to if there's any information coming out of the different locations that are a little bit ahead of us as to is there an alternative? What, it, it, what alternative, if any, are they using if you can't get the hydroxychloroquine and are you doing ZPAC alone? What are some of, and I know that you've switched up ZPAC in some patients to Doxy. So just um, any, any um, thoughts on the alternatives? Um, you know, there, um, there's a few, uh, there's a, um, I'm gonna, they're going to do an interview with me uh, for New York in, uh, on Monday, just try to get the information to the physician out there and the problem and we know that they're they donate a lot of medication of the, the plaquenil to that pop up uh, to uh, new york to try to fight this 
and uh, personal tell me that they're not were, were a lot of the physicians were push had a lot of pushback and they didn't want to use that medication and uh, so this is what I think it's a problem here. So when you're in the hospital, it's a different setting. You have a lot of committee. You have to look at data. You have a lot of things that you have to decipher to make sure that when you make a recommendation that it's going to be safe for everybody, right? So it's harder for, for a hospital and a physician there to think differently, right? They, they, that's what they do. If you make a mistake, you're going to have a Q&A and you're going to be, you know, you can be scrutinized quite a bit, right? And there's a lot of things that go with, the, especially in a teaching hospital. And in the hospital, it, it just, they don't pivot as quickly. And so when they ask physician in those areas, it's very confusing to them to give you an answer because that's not how they practice, right? And so for them to watch my video, that whatever the practice how you do look i'm a researcher i guarantee you i'll probably have more publication they do i have a phd in nutrition but i published so no i know how research works i'm just saying is that try to go practice in small rural area where you don't have anything and that you're gonna have to use your brain to function right and for you not to try something on a small short period of time to see if it worked I think to me is that you're waiting for something to happen that will get here by August. And I have a feeling a lot of people are going to die, right? Um, I can't even get them to try those medication. By the time a lot of the, my, my brother who's in ICU, said by the time he or they're in that setting, it's uh, flip a coin, you know, and uh, the study that came out of China if you're innovated, I think we're in the ICU, the fatality, fatality rate was about 68%. It's even worse than that. And um, so I, I think it's, it's the physician. I think is, uh, we're not the one that really, to me, uh, stepping up and really doing what we need to do. So that's why my pitch was really more to my primary care doctor who has a little more autonomy because it's their, it's their patient. And when you're sitting there and uh, you watch people hold their parents' hand and taking care of them 24 hours, taking care of their husband for 12 to 14 days of being ill, I, I guarantee if a physician see their family go through that, I guarantee they wouldn't say the thing that they're saying, that they're not data, right? Mm -hmm. Just put yourself in their position. I guarantee you wouldn't say that. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And I really appreciate your ability to empathize. And, and, and a lot of that comes from your own experience a year ago, which I, I listened to your story when you mentioned it. And I think a lot of us, once we have seen that either with our family members or ourselves, we can, we can project our, how we would be in this situation. And um, yeah, we would be scrambling for, if it was our loved one or if it was ourselves, we'd be scrambling for anything we could get our hands on that has any amount of even anecdotal evidence. And um, we wouldn't be worrying about retinopathy. So I, I'm, I'm with you. I, I really do appreciate your, um, your being vocal about this um, and 
putting yourself at a vulnerable place because like you said, you're yeah. getting some, you're going to get some kickback and this is, this is just the world we live in. Everybody's got an opinion, right? And so, and everybody wants to say, yeah, your nay. I'm on your side for what it's worth. Yeah. And I, I love that you are sharing this information because I think that people on the front lines need to know what other physicians are doing and the results that they're getting from it. And, um, you know, it's, it's much more beneficial than listening to the news or, you know, some of the sort of sensationalized, um, people on the news who aren't necessarily in the trenches. They're not, they're not in the trenches. They are reporting on what they hear and um, you were in the trenches with your patients. And I appreciate the approach that you take and the empathy that you have. So thank you so much for your time and your insights today, Dr. Bon. I really appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. I, I want to um, mention one thing. Yes. It's interesting. Um, I had a colleague of mine uh, and I just sent this to him this morning because he asked how I was doing. He didn't even know what's going on. So I sent my video to him and he said, oh my gosh, I had a phone call last night in the nursing home. Somebody had fever, severe malaise, diarrhea. And I told him, it's like, look, you have to be on top of this because you're not only trying to save this person, but you're stopping the spread of this because next thing you know, everybody who there is vulnerable and I said that this is really debilitating to people. If they're in a nursing home, who's going to take care of them? Who's going to be able to do that? So, you know, um, it, it will hit home because on this, when I was talking about this community, that they went to a conference. They have one of 700 people up in, uh, in Washington, in Vancouver, but they also had a 5,000 member conference in LA. And some of those have gone back and already told me that they have been test positive. They have taken picture with this elder gentleman. Their, um, that their uh, wife is in the hospital now with pneumonia and their, their mother-in-law passed away and then multiple from different states. So it's not gonna be limited to this one community I'm talking about. That's what my main point is that it affects every one of us. So just don't take this lightly and um, this, in like in some of us, it might be nothing. Some of us is going to be painful, and some of us is going to it's going to take our life. Really, yeah, really so. important and significant to point that out. Um, and I'm glad that you did because I think not everybody is really willing to just state it as it is, and that's just as it is. Um, I'm going to include your link where people can find you, but if you want to just briefly say um, where people can find you, uh, well, both maybe your YouTube channel, if they want to listen, and then your um, clinic's website. Yeah, so on the, for us from our YouTube, it's a waitlist for life. Waitlist meaning like you, the reason we call that waitlistforlife.com is I want you to feel like, you can, then nothing holding you down. Cause that's what I, that's where I got the term from when I started my waitlist clinic uh, 11 years ago. And that's why I want people to feel um, on the clinic from only in California. Now it's uh, called telemed, uh, telemds with an S.com. And then we're going to start uh, pushing more telemed to treat people because I think that's the safest. Your home, I'm in my clinic. Nobody will be exposed um and you're too tired to be showing up to get help in the er and things like that you should be home resting mm -hmm. and one last thing i'm saying is that one of the things that was most helpful in everyone there in their family 
is that they felt like they had somebody to talk to. Like when they had a question and then like just all these questions, they felt like they can reach out to me and I answer their question. They're like, oh, okay, great. And I think that takes away a lot of the, the hysteria or the, the, the craziness that's in, in the media now is that they can call me and I just like, hey, this is what's going on. We'll be okay. Um, and I think that's sort of what's been helpful. And I, I, I love telemedicine. I hope it, that maybe it'll push that toward that, um, the new beginning for that because we need to have more access to it. Yes, I agree. I, I think it, I think at this time it's, it can be very a, an anxiety ridden time feeling like nobody's on your side. And just to know that you have a healthcare professional who is not only empathetic, but extremely knowledgeable is um, it puts you at peace. I guess it makes you weightless. So I love your name. Uh, I will, I will include a link to your website. Thank you so much, Dr. Bond for sharing your insights, your time and for being vocal when not everybody is willing to do that. So thank you. Okay, thank you so much for having me and thank you for spreading all the words and uh, hopefully the love and remember, we're a community no matter what you think, you know, we're United States, the world, we're a lot more closer than you think. A huge thank you to Dr. Bon and such important parting words that we all really are in this together and the more awareness and the more vocalizing of what's working and staying in the positive rather than the anxiety and fear mongering, we can really start to make a difference and stop this pandemic. So I appreciate all of the physicians and providers who have come on here so far. I am committed to bringing you as much as I can possibly from the front lines. Stay tuned and I'll see you here again very soon.